Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers podcast, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15, and we'll be starting verse 22. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks again, Lord, for allowing us to study your word and and uh, the truths that we can find in, in your word uh, are so valuable for allowing us to shine our lights to others to uh, verify that Jesus is real. And thanks for, for Mark and his uh, study here and his preparation. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Tom. It's good to be with you and Leslie and all of our, our uh, listeners out throughout the world in these interesting times in which we live. We have been looking at the book of Acts, originally known as the History of Christian Origins, uh, Volume 2, the sequel to the, to the Gospel according to Luke. And we have seen uh, throughout this book a systematic fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies made to Israel. Uh, quite different from the approach that most uh, Bible teachers take in the United States today and in the Protestant world at large. The gospel had gone to the Gentiles beginning back in Acts 10 when Peter went to Cornelius and his household. And then we see the, the outreach explode in chapters 11 through 14, which brought about some... Uh, significant jealous responses amongst the Judean Christians who numbered in the tens of thousands or more by this time down in Jerusalem the surrounding areas and uh, they had sent uh, troublemakers well they hadn't sent no some of those people who were troubled went up to Antioch in Syria where there was a vast number of of non-Judean Christians and began binding the law of Moses on them, uh, particularly uh, circumcision, and then full obedience to the law. So in Acts 15, as we came there, uh, some of the people, or some of the, (laughs) the church in Antioch and Syria sent emissaries, Paul and Barnabas, down to Jerusalem to get this matter straightened out, because uh, Paul and Barnabas and others had been teaching that the non-Judean Christians, known as Gentiles to most English readers, did not need to be circumcised and should not be circumcised and did not 
need to follow the law of Moses. So that's what we've been studying up to this point. The key prophecy that was quoted by James, the brother of Jesus, presumably, as a leader of the Jerusalem church, was Amos 9, where it was foretold that in the last days when the tabernacle of David would be restored, that the nations would flow into Israel or into the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom. And this has great significance, which is what was the uh, gist of our uh, talk last time. But they have decided that the non-Judean Christians do not need to be circumcised and that they do not need to follow the law of Moses. And this brings us up to verse 22, where we're going to pick up tonight with just this one point, that if the Gentiles were coming in to the kingdom at this time, as James said, then this is the time in which the tabernacle of David was being restored. And we can see that this is the the kingdom that was uh, promised. And unfortunately, again, so many millions of people in the United States today think the kingdom is about to be restored in literal Jerusalem and literal Palestine, which causes all kinds of uh, geopolitical problems with that view. But the, these men back here in the first century understood that it was happening at that time. So let's pick up here and read verses 22 through 29 in Acts 15, please. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles greeting. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. All right. Thank you, Leslie. We want to note first that the church in Jerusalem was not like um, most modern churches in America today. It was on the news today that some pastor of a mega church in North Carolina is building himself a $1.5 million home, 6,000 square feet or something. His mega church is about eight years old, and the church has has paid to promote his book. He claims that he's 
building the house just out of uh, book proceeds, and yet the church paid for all of his time to research and write the book and to promote the book and so on. But churches in America today are big money-making institutions, and uh, that's not the way the church was at this time. We, we can infer a few things from uh, verse 22 here. The church in Jerusalem was more like a giant family than it was a money-making institution. They met from time to time in the uh, temple courtyard. Herod had expanded the temple courtyard to a huge level area equivalent, I think, to nine football fields in area. So it was massive and could hold huge numbers of people in the outer courtyards. And this is presumably where the church in Jerusalem met when they all came together. And they met uh, daily, uh, day by day, night by night, to eat together, to, to study together in private homes, in smaller groups, which were subsets of the whole church there at Jerusalem. And, and as any family would, they have leaders, not those who have the most money, not those who can garner the most vote in a majority rule election, but those who just rise to the top as uh, patriarchs. There is still a, a male aspect to leadership. The women, of course, really run things, uh, probably since before this time. But the men are up there as kind of the figureheads. And, uh, you know, they've been selected to kind of be the family leaders and spokesmen. And, of course, the 12 are there, all of the 12 are there, presumably, who Jesus handpicked. So, of course, they are uh, special leaders unique to that day and age. We don't have the equivalent thing today. But this this large family group all made the decision together. They came to this decision by consensus, not by vote or not by counting only those who have the most money uh, to contribute uh, as in a board of directors or anything like that. The entire congregation or assembly came to consensus on this matter and they are writing this letter to send up to the church in Antioch in Syria along with the two men that had been sent down plus uh, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas and we'll hear more of Silas later on in Acts and then beginning in verse 23 we get the text of this letter from church to church they recap the facts that we've already uh, gone over, how they were distraught. In verse 25, we have resolved, reached, having reached one mind in the matter. This is consensus right here in verse 25. We have selected men and are sending them along with this letter with Barnabas and Paul. And they acknowledge the risk that Barnabas and Paul have taken in their journeys already thus far for the name of Jesus Christ. And then they recap the decision here, beginning in verse 28. Uh, we in the Holy Spirit have resolved to impose no further burden on you than this, to abstain from food that has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangled meat, and from fornication. If you guard yourself from these things, you will do well. So this is a very definitive answer on the idea of circumcision for a a Gentile 
or non-Judean uh, uh, Christian. It is uh, not necessary at all. Paul will have a lot to say about this in some of his writings. Presumably, though, all during this time, children that would be born into Judean Christian families, uh, the male children, would continue to be circumcised, and all of them would continue to observe the law of Moses until the end uh, of the nation uh, coming up here in, in a few decades at this point. But we see uh, one set of rules and guidelines for Judean Christians and another for those who are not Judean. And this... Mark? Yes. I had a question. What is the significance or what does strangled from things offered to idols, from things strangled, what does that mean, actually? Is it set a lot in their heads off? or Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, apparently there were a few pagan dishes where they did not want to bleed the meat out, and they left the animal unbled as part of the slaughtering and preparation. The, okay. They're very important aspect of... Uh, what's called today kosher food preparation. But according to the law of Moses, the life is in the blood. And so this right. is, this is yeah, you, you, the light bulb's already gone on, I can tell. So, uh, <laughs> okay. yeah. you know, the, yeah, they just did not want to leave the blood, the life blood in the animal. There had to be a separation there for symbolic uh, reasons. And many would, would debate the health benefits of this at all. Some of those are valid and some are overblown. The, the main idea of the uh, food restrictions in the Law of Moses were to maintain the separateness of the people and all point towards the necessity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These were basically the restrictions that were given to Noah after the flood when he came off the ark. And Judean teachers through the years had believed that all people of the earth as descendants of Noah were bound to keep those same restrictions, the same covenant that God made with Noah at the end of the flood. And in all likelihood, this is the same restriction that the synagogues had placed on the God-fearing non-Judeans who had been assembling with them uh, for, well, in growing numbers, but for the last few hundred years, presumably, their numbers had been building up throughout the Roman world. So they they would gather with the Judeans on uh, Sabbath to hear the scriptures read. And so there had to be certain restrictions placed on these God-fearing Greeks Greeks as a, as a synonym for Gentile, someone who spoke Greek instead of Aramaic or, or Hebrew and was not Judean by birth. So these restrictions they would have already been very familiar with and in all likelihood most of them would have been following these for many, many years even before the gospel reached Antioch after the execution of Stephen in Jerusalem early on in the book of Acts. So this is a great sense of relief, as we will see here in the next paragraph. 
Uh, one other point on this uh, paragraph in chapter 15 is that in verse 28, when they mentioned the Holy Spirit had resolved this issue and ourselves, the Holy Spirit and ourselves, this, again, bears no semblance to any kind of uh, corporate decision-making process, but they understand the church's role as the vehicle of the Spirit or the uh, dwelling place of the Spirit. We, when we studied the Gospel of John, we saw the rich temple imagery uh, throughout the Gospel of John and the deliberate use of symbolism and symbolic language throughout the Gospel by Jesus himself, the living Word of God. And he taught of a spiritual temple that would replace the physical temple in Jerusalem uh, throughout the Gospel of John. And the, the church in Jerusalem is very much aware that they are the new spiritual temple of God in process. The Spirit is dwelling in them as they are being built up into the, the proper abode for the Father and the Son who will appear at the end of the age to indwell in, in the body. But the Spirit is there with them at this time and is making the decision by his indwelling of the church in Jerusalem. So I failed to mention that earlier. Any other uh, thoughts on this before we move on to the next paragraph? All right, well, let's read verses 30 through 35, please. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching, with many others also, the word of the Lord. All right, thank you. So they, they headed north to Antioch, but you always come down from Jerusalem since it sits on top of a hill, uh, or almost, not quite on top, but almost at the top of a hill. All the roads out of Jerusalem go downhill to the north, south, east, and west. So they came down to Antioch. The congregation there, another large family group like the one in Jerusalem, they all got together at some public uh, place, and they numbered already in you know, thousands or tens of thousands by this time as well. And they uh, read the letter together and rejoiced at the encouragement, verse 31 tells us, which brings to mind the rejoicing of the Ethiopian eunuch who had rejoiced after being immersed out near Gaza on his way back home after worshiping in Jerusalem, he had come up to Jerusalem as a second or third class citizen of Israel. He was a eunuch, so he was excluded from the congregation by that. And he was foreign born, presumably a foreigner. So he had two strikes against him. They would take his money, but allow him into the inner court where the Israelite males in good standing and in 
ceremonial cleanness could assemble just outside where the priests and Levites were offering the sacrifices on the altar, he had to view everything from afar. So there had to be some uh, sadness, I think, uh, to his visit. But, you know, he hadn't gotten too far away from Jerusalem when Philip uh, found him there in the desert place near Gaza and explained to him the teaching of the prophet Isaiah and, of course, just just a few pages beyond where he had been studying was the passage that the in the Messianic kingdom, no more would the eunuch and the foreign-born be treated as second-class citizens with no heirs, but they would have many, many spiritual children in the kingdom of God. Uh, yet another place where we learn of the spiritual nature of the kingdom as opposed to the uh, present carnal concept of the kingdom uh, popular today in the dispensational camp. But in in commonality here, you see these Gentile God-fearers in the synagogues throughout the Roman world were like that Ethiopian eunuch in that they were second-class citizens of Israel. The Israelite men would have had the chief seats right in the front of the synagogue, close to where the scrolls were kept and read. And the women would have sat in the back or off to the side. And then the God-fearers would have been to the back, to the side, further out from the men of Israel. The gospel had brought the message to them that they could be just like the eunuch. They could be citizens of top tier in the kingdom of God. Then they had been set back by these teachers who claimed they needed to be circumcised before they could really be joined to Israel. And now they have this letter where the entire Jerusalem congregation, through consensus, through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, has said, no, you were right to begin with. That you, you, are, you are in the kingdom. You're equal to a Judean by birth. You do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to keep the law. This is great cause for rejoicing. And this is a, this is a key concept that is missed by so many today. The, the struggle is not whether all Christians should keep the law of Moses or not. The struggle is whether non-Judean Christians need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to no longer be second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. It's about equality with two different standards, and it seems grievously unfair to the Judeans who have enjoyed spiritual superiority for 1,200 years uh, since Moses and the law. They're having to give that up, and some of them are giving that up extremely reluctantly. But unless we can grasp this concept, we cannot properly understand the context of Acts or of any of Paul's writings or, or even James, Peter, and the other writers of the New Testament. So, uh, sorry to belabor that point, but it's just something that we haven't heard too often and that we really need to get in our minds to, to properly have the context of these passages. So they're rejoicing. 
And then in verse 32, we're told that Judas and Silas were prophets themselves. Uh, this represents a special gift of prophecy, uh, not just as, as we might exercise today. We can read the Word of God to those who don't know it, and we can, we can claim to be prophets of a sort. But I believe this is referring to a very special gift which was unique to this generation of time between the death of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem. You have roughly 40 years, roughly one generation, and we have special gifts given, including the apostles themselves. They were special gifts which did not need to be repeated after that generation passed. To help them in their work, they had evangelists who were men that had these special gifts of translation, memory, recall, uh, and so on. And they had uh, people with the gift of prophecy, both men and women, scattered throughout all the churches in the world at that time. And these prophets could utter inspired messages from the Holy Spirit as they were given utterance. Keep in mind that they had no New Testament books at at this time, they appeared all towards the end of this 40-year period. So they had the Hebrew scriptures, and then they had the words of Jesus as he had spent 40 days opening the minds of the disciples to properly understand the Hebrew scriptures. Now the disciples, some aided by this gift of prophecy, are continuing on with that work of Christ to open the minds of the believers so that they can properly understand Jesus as he appears throughout the Old Testament prophets and, and uh, the how that the Old Testament scriptures all speak of Jesus and of his coming kingdom, which was being fulfilled in these days, as we saw way back in Acts 3. So these two men could have confirmed the message of the letter with a direct message from the Holy Spirit at this time. And that gift would not have been necessary, as Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, those gifts were given until the kingdom reached spiritual maturity, which I believe would have occurred after the mission of the apostles was complete, after all the New Testament books were written, and all of the promises uh, had been fulfilled which would have occurred by the time the temple ceased to exist in Jerusalem or in A.D. 70. All right, so they were uh, very encouraged uh, by the words of these two prophets, and they were strengthened as a result of that. So they stayed some time there and then went back uh, to Jerusalem with a message of peace. And again, great progress great positive energy would have been flowing as a result of this conference in Jerusalem, the letter of the reception back in Antioch of Syria. Paul and Barnabas stayed on there, uh, teaching and preaching the Word of God together with with many others. And some some versions say Silas stayed on there as well. But, uh, I mean, he could have come back later, but uh, if those manuscripts are right, he stayed on and Judas went back alone to Jerusalem. All right, any other thoughts on this paragraph? No, I don't think so.
Okay, so the the last paragraph of chapter 15 is really the beginning of chapter 16, and so we'll choose to break at this time, and then we will see a new journey beginning here in chapter 15, verse 36, where Paul and Barnabas end up parting company, and Paul will take Silas as his traveling partner on his next long journey. He'll uh, repeat a lot of the places he had gone before and then go on to new places. So I look forward to being with you all again the next time. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.